To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast contains adult language and descriptions of violence, including sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. August 1978. Try to picture it. No social media. The internet, it wasn't a thing yet. No cell phones. If you wanted to make a call, you probably did it from the phone attached to the wall in your kitchen. Jimmy Carter was midway through his presidency. It was the year that cult leader Jim Jones led more than 900 people to their deaths in the Jonestown Massacre the Iran hostage crisis, and long lines at the pump due to the gas shortage were just around the corner. In Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, the murder rate was soaring, and people were fleeing to the suburbs and small communities outside the city. Some landed in Chester County, about an hour west of Philly, a place thought of as safe, innocent, a community where people never locked their homes and children played outside until dark. But in August 1978, that innocence was shattered when murder landed on their doorsteps. The murders in Chester County I'm about to tell you about weren't at the hands of a serial killer stalking strangers, watching them through their windows at night. They weren't random acts of violence or burglaries gone wrong. The bizarre and brutal murders were calculated, strategic, and personal. About as personal as it gets, because the murders were committed by family. In late August 1978, Bruce Johnston Jr. was a teenager in love. Deeply, madly in love with Robin Miller. And she was equally smitten with him. The devotion they had to each other was a little bit unique. <laughs> I mean, I know what puppy love is, but I, it, it did seem unique to me. Former Pennsylvania State Police Officer Tom Cloud knew 19-year-old Bruce Jr. from the teenager's brushes with the law. I called him Brucey. Brucey wore his brown, wavy hair in the typical style of the day, hippie long, and he sported a handlebar mustache. Robin was a petite brunette with a Dorothy Hamill haircut, made famous by the Olympic skater in 1976. And she had a mischievous smile that immediately endeared her to people. When Bruce Jr. first met Robin the year before, hanging out in the town square, He'd worried Robin wouldn't be interested in a guy like him. While Bruce Jr. was known as a bit of a bad boy who often committed crimes with his father, 15-year-old Robin lived in a nice house. She was the daughter of a dairy farmer. Her family was considered reputable, unlike his. So I think that for Bruce Jr., part of the appeal was that this girl, this cute girl, popular girl, would be interested in him. So it was a it was a boost, an ego boost, I guess. 
That's former Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass. And apparently he was, you know, very solicitous of her, you know, very caring, very did everything for, cared about her. So I think that they just, they just felt that they had somebody who cared about them. Four years older than Robin, you could say Junior was robbing the cradle by dating a girl in her mid-teens. He was also very serious about their relationship. They planned to get married. And the couple was inseparable, Julia Cass wrote, except when Junior was out stealing with his father, Bruce Sr., that is. Friends told Julia that Robin knew about Junior's involvement in the family crime operation but not about the details. And they said Robin believed once they got married, Junior would settle down, stop stealing, and turn his life around. So that's where things stood for Junior and Robin in late August 1978. On August 29th, they did what teenagers in love do, They went to Hershey Park. They went on rides, ate Hershey's chocolate, and Bruce Jr. even bought Robin a new purse. The couple then headed home in Robin's mother's little yellow Volkswagen after their dreamy date. The house sat there, a driveway came in, and there were outbuildings to the left. Robin's family wasn't home. So when Robin and Bruce Jr. pulled up to the property a little after midnight on August 30th, the farmhouse was empty. But the couple wasn't alone. And across the road was a cornfield where they were sitting, watching and waiting. Two men had been talking quietly in that cornfield, smoking cigarettes and waiting for hours under the cloak of darkness for Junior to return. The men watched the couple finally arrive home. Junior turned on the dome light in the car so Robin could gather her things. They turned on the interior lights so Robin could get her new pocketbook. Then the shooting started. Reporter Bruce Mowdy covered the case for years for the Daily Local News in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And he remembers learning about what happened to Robin and Bruce Jr. A bullet grazed his head or went into his shoulder or around his skull. He was shot numerous, numerous times, and Robin was hit once. Robin got shot in the chin. He told her to run. Robin ran into the farmhouse. Bruce was able to run in after her, and Robin died in his arms as Bruce called in to the police saying, you know, we're being shot, we're being shot. I read Julia Cass's articles from the aftermath of what would come to be known as the ambush, and I was struck by something she focused in on, Julia wrote about how just before that moment that changed everything, it had all been so mundane. 
Bruce Jr. had told Robin he was hungry, and Robin commented she needed to feed the cat. The ambush would turn out to be one of many gruesome acts perpetrated by one group of criminals in that community in a single month. August 4th, 1978 is the, quote, breaking the case. August 15th is the gravesite. August 30th is the ambush. How fast it went downhill just amazed me. We're going to talk about a lot of shootings, a lot of murders. Keep track. You'll notice that all of them were in the back. Except for the 15-year-old girl. They were brave enough to shoot her once in the chin. All the rest of them were in the back. The ambush would lead investigators on a dark search for more victims, buried in the bucolic rolling farmlands of Andrew Wyeth country in rural Pennsylvania. How many were actually killed that month? How many whose bodies haven't been found is still unknown. What is clear now, and yet is still, after all these years, incomprehensible, is who ordered and committed these crimes. It wasn't strangers. It wasn't rival gang members. It was family. Put the gun right in the back of his stepson's head and, and pulled the trigger. I can't explain it. I can't understand how you can shoot a member of your own family, your stepson, and put a contract down on your own son. That's just, I, I can't deal with it. I can't explain it. I, I can't relate to it family, killing their own flesh and blood in order to protect themselves and the family crime empire they had so carefully built. The story still hangs over this community, the gruesome details of the crimes etched in people's minds. He had dirt under his fingernails like he had tried to dig his way out. This is the story about what happened that month in August 1978, about the investigators who had been rabid on the trail of the gang members for years, who finally believed they had evidence to try and put them behind bars for good. It's a story about longing for the love of a family, about what the word family really means and what it takes to betray those bonds. It's also my story. Because you see, back in 1978, the night of the ambush on Robin and Bruce Jr., my father, William Lamb, was the district attorney of Chester County, Pennsylvania. From that night on, the case became his life for two years, and in turn, the life of our family. just 12 years old when it all started. I didn't really understand it at the time. I just knew my dad had an important job, and a dangerous job. Sometimes he slept with a loaded revolver next to his bed. Now, 45 years later, I'm revisiting this chapter with my father and the people who are still alive to remember it digging into the horrific things that happened back in August of 1978, peeling back the unbelievable layers of this story, 
a story about cold-blooded murder, about people being buried alive, about a family of criminals, the Johnston Gang, willing to kill anyone who got in their way. Yeah, don't snitch. You don't give up anybody. And if you did? Well, we see the results of if you did. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. In order to explain why the ambush happened, we have to go back in time to understand what led up to this tragic event. Most of the violent acts, but not all of them, took place in August of 1978. Many things happened along the way that set this killing spree in motion. First, we'll take you to earlier that summer in 1978 and how it led to the moment a target was put on Bruce Jr.'s back. That summer, Doug Richardson was a young assistant U.S. attorney handling federal cases in Philadelphia. I was green as grass, had been handling sort of routine federal cases that involved the robberies of mailboxes and such. Doug didn't know it yet, but everything was about to change for him. State police officer Tom Cloud and an FBI agent named David Richter walked into Doug's office. They wanted a grand jury subpoena in a case involving an interstate farm equipment fencing ring. Yes, that's right, farm equipment. And I'm sort of going hum, hum, ho, hum. It was a case that Dave and Tom had been working consistently for months, but they didn't feel like they had gotten all the resources they needed to crack it because there wasn't enough of a buy-in from Dave's superiors at the FBI. And it looked like Doug was about to give these guys the very same treatment. But then something caught Doug's eye. David Richter is carrying a huge accordion stack computer printout. He points to this printout and he says, here is a printout of 2,200 thefts that these people have done in and around the Kennett Square area and Chester County. And what does it take to, to get you to take it seriously? When I showed him that printout, he was convinced. That's Dave Richter. As it turned out, more tractors had been stolen in the region in the time period Dave had documented in that printout than in all the other states in the country combined. Dave goes on to tell Doug that there's a gang headed by a guy named Bruce Johnston Sr. and two of his brothers, David and Norman, who are responsible for running the theft ring. They've stolen bulldozers and they've stolen farm tractors and they've stolen combines. They just had a lot of chutzpah. They would go in and uh, they would wait till it got dark and they'd open the garage door and they'd wheel the tractors out and they would put them on a flatbed and away they would go. And it wasn't just farm equipment. Dave Richter told Doug the Johnston brothers stole cars, art, antiques, money, cigarettes, you name it. Millions of dollars worth of items that they sold across state lines between Pennsylvania, 
Maryland, and Delaware. And I remember asking Richard, you know, what do these people specialize in? He just said anything that isn't nailed down. It was a crime enterprise they had been steadily building for a decade. And now it was a well-oiled machine. And they had sort of scared away most of the competition out in Chester County. The word was out that you really didn't blank with the the Johnsons too much because they could get rough with you. The more Doug learned about the Johnstons, the more they stood out. The police had never been able to get one brother to turn on another. It became clear that the Johnstons had a sacred code. Not snitching meant everything. And there was another thing that captured Doug's attention. They're also grooming their kids to grow up to be robbers, burglars, and gangsters. The next generation of the Johnston Gang was a crew of mostly teenagers who had been dubbed the Kitty Gang. Some members were sons and nephews of the Johnstons. And in the early summer of 1978, one of those kids, Bruce Johnston Sr.'s son, Bruce Jr., was arrested for stealing pickup truck tailgates and $1 worth of gas. The Johnstons had been bailing each other out of jail for petty crimes for years, but not this time. Senior refused to pay the $10,000 to get his son out. Some speculate it was to teach Junior a lesson for getting caught in such a petty crime. So Junior stayed in jail most of the summer. Investigators like Tom Cloud and Dave Richter tried to get him to talk, to give up other people in the gang, to get out of jail. But Junior knew the Johnston gang code, and he wasn't talking. And then, suddenly, after weeks of silence, Junior reached out to investigators and told them he was ready to talk about the gang. (laughs) I'll talk to anybody who's talking, you know, especially a Johnson. At first, former Chief Chester County Detective Charlie Zagorski didn't put too much stock in the possibility that Junior might have something valuable to say. He got calls from inmates all the time who claimed that they had information about other criminals that they were willing to trade for their freedom. Charlie says most of these kinds of allegations turned out to be less than credible. And the kid was being held on fairly minor charges, So why would he confess to more serious crimes that he committed with his father? But Charlie soon realized that Junior was very serious. So he got all the investigators together who had been working on the Johnston case and invited them to meet with the gang leader's son. So at the meeting with Junior, Tom Cloud and Dave Richter listened as Junior told them about a letter he recently received while in jail from his girlfriend, Robin Miller. She wrote that his father, Bruce Sr., and another gang member, James Sampson, had taken her to a motel on the way back from visiting Junior in jail. Robin said in the letter that the men had bet her $100 that she couldn't drink a half pint of whiskey 
and that she woke up in the motel room the next morning without her clothes and believed that she had been raped by James Sampson and Bruce Sr. Dave Richter says before that letter, Junior had known to keep his mouth shut about the criminal activities of the Johnston gang. He was a very street smart young kid who'd been in trouble before in law enforcement. He knew the rules, but he was so upset about what happened to Robin Miller. His devotion to her was very strong. I'm emphasizing that because it was very strong. Former state police officer Tom Cloud. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That was the straw that broke that code. He was not going to put up with this. Robin was everything to Junior. And the idea that she had been sexually assaulted by his own father, well, in that moment, everything he'd been taught about loyalty to the family crime empire went out the window. He basically told everything that he was involved with and who he was involved with right then and there. He didn't know about some of the big burglaries and, and, and safe jobs. However, he did have little pieces of information that were very helpful in the sense of identifying fences. He knew where the, the tractors were gone. Which was so important to investigators. Without the benefit of modern technology that tracks a criminal's every move today, they had to build the case the old-fashioned way. They had to rely on witnesses who could put the Johnstons at the crime scenes. So Junior talking was a huge boost to the case they had been working on for so long. Investigators knew that if Bruce Sr. got wind that his son was talking to them, Sr. would move swiftly to shut Junior down. Sr. could easily pay him to keep quiet, hide him in a motel, even put him on a plane to go anywhere until things cooled down. Senior had people who could make this happen in an instant. So investigators had to move fast. Here's what Doug Richardson remembers discussing with his colleague, Dave Richter. Let's pop Bruce Jr. in front of the grand jury just enough to lock him in. Let's just get a few specific crimes on the record. Dave will take some from your printout and Bruce Jr., will testify under oath before the federal grand jury, and I'll give you subpoenas for the rest of the gang members, and we'll get them in. And we'll do a classic wedging case, which is what feds do. You start lower down in the food chain, and you begin turning people and getting them to go ever higher with the idea that we wanted to get Bruce Johnston Sr. really badly. It's like... Uh, you know, convicting Al Capone of income tax violations. You, see, you take whatever you can get. On August 9, 1978, Junior testified before a federal grand jury in Philadelphia about the burglaries he had committed with his father. He explained that he and the Kitty Gang, which included his half-brother, Jimmy Johnston, 
had stolen 12 tractors with Bruce Sr. He also testified about other burglaries that he was aware of but didn't participate in that involved his uncles, David and Norman Johnston. Doug knew that this testimony was the thing that was going to allow him to indict these men after what appeared to be a decade of committing crimes with near impunity. After Junior's grand jury testimony, Doug recalls taking him back to his office. And I said, you know, Bruce, your father's really going to be angry when he hears about this. He says, I don't know and I don't care. And I said, yeah, but man, and I said this jokingly, he's going to kill you. And he said, I don't care. You know, he did this to Robin and I'm going to pay that son of a bitch back. Did you ever reflect on that statement later? Over and over again. Because it was said as a toss-off line. It was, I, I already had him locked in. I wasn't trying to, to badger him. And I really didn't, at that point, have a sense of what kind of people I was dealing with. I thought I was, these were just hillbillies that still pick up truck tailgates and John Deere lawn tractors. So if we talk about who was naive, I was probably the one who was naive. As expected, Sr. did hear about his son's testimony in front of the grand jury. He went by a relative's home, where he asked them to get a message to his son that he would pay Jr. $12,000 to shut up and tell the investigators that he was recanting his grand jury testimony, that he had been on drugs at the time, and had lied. The state police asked the judge that Jr.'s bond be kept high at $100,000, because they felt like he was safer in jail than on the street. But in all their efforts to keep their star witness safe, they didn't factor in Junior's desperate desire to get out of jail and see Robin. He eventually wore them down, told them he would stop talking if they didn't let him out of jail. So despite their reservations, Junior was released on bond. The FBI, at that time, gave him the option of going into the Federal Witness Protection Program. He did not want protection. He wanted to be with Robin, and he wanted to smoke pot. So we offered him the protection, but he, he declined it. So we just told him, you got to lay low and don't say anything to anybody. And in local news, the Designery of North Raleigh is holding a grand opening event at noon on May 16th. Please stop by and join the party. I'm Dana Merrill, the owner of the Designery. I am True Merrill. I am the project manager. The Designery grand opening, we're scheduled to open May 16th and do our grand opening party then. Uh, we're going to be catering some food. We're doing some giveaways. We have a VR headset, an Echo Show, some kitchen gadgets, and some fancy knives. 12 to 2 p.m. Please stop by our showroom, 3030 Wake Forest Road. That's The Designery at thedesignery.com. Your heart. It's the only one you have. Fortunately, you also have a choice. Expert cardiologists. Talented surgeons. Highly skilled specialists. All of whom chose WakeMed. Why? The main reason is the same reason patients choose WakeMed. Everything you need for the best possible care is right here. Learn more 
at WakeMed.org. WakeMed Heart and Vascular Physicians. Your heart, your choice. Little Bruce, Brucey, Bruce Jr., just to make it simple, we're going to call him Jr. most of the time, so you know when we're talking about him and when we're talking about his dad, Bruce Sr. But whatever people called him back then, members of law enforcement in Chester County in August 1978 knew who he was and knew about the huge impact of his decision to talk, snitch, dime, inform, squeal, rat on the Johnston gang. Junior testified before the grand jury on August 9th. This was three weeks before the ambush. He'd also given up the names of a crew of kids who were part of the so-called kitty gang. These kids were from poor families, from broken homes, had dropped out of school, and didn't have jobs. Some of them were related to the older members of the Johnston gang. These kids didn't necessarily see a future. And being part of the kitty gang, well, it was like being part of a family. It meant belonging in a way that many of them had never felt in their fractured homes. At the urging of investigators, Junior told his half-brother, Jimmy Johnston, and their friends in the kitty gang that it was in their best interests to cooperate. They were scheduled to come to court and testify before the grand jury, starting with Jimmy Johnston, who was scheduled to appear on August 16th. Our plan was we would get them in before the grand jury because that, in a sense, gives them protection. Once their testimony is on the federal grand jury, that testimony can be used. That was a great protection for them in the sense that their testimony would be then done. Harming them or sending them away or, or anything like that wouldn't accomplish shutting that information out. So you're building this case. You finally have the kitty gang turning. But August 16th comes and Jimmy doesn't show up. Can't find him. And you can't find any of the kids. No. So... At this point, what did you think had happened? I hoped they had uh, taken them, to, you know, to a motel somewhere and promised them the moon. That's what I hoped. Um, I sensed that it could be bad. I didn't know. I mean, I really didn't know. members of the kitty gang had simply disappeared. In the middle of August 1978, Tom Cloud could not yet imagine how far the Johnston gang, led by Bruce Sr., would go to keep snitches quiet. But Tom and the others on the case, like Doug Richardson, would see their first glimpse of what the gang was capable of a couple weeks later, on August 30th, 1978, the night of the ambush. Absolutely one of the most shocking motions of my life. I got a call from Dave Richter, 
and it would have been late in the evening, I mean, after I'd gone to bed. And he says, they've ambushed, and that was the word he used, they've ambushed little Bruce and Robin. Tell me what your emotions were at this point when you hear that that Bruce Jr. has been shot, that his girlfriend has been killed, and that the kids are missing. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. That is when the gravity of what they would do came home to me. The ambush changed everything. It was just so unexpected. And what happened to Junior after the shooting was just incredible. I trust you've heard the story by now of why little Bruce lived. Despite having eight or nine bullet wounds, accounts vary, in the head, neck, shoulder, chest, stomach, and arm, Junior survived the ambush. When they got little Bruce to the hospital, his face looked like hamburger, but none of the bullets had penetrated his skull. Police eventually found out why. The gun Bruce was shot with was a 38 caliber revolver that had been stolen out of a truck. So the shooters wouldn't have known this, but the gun was loaded with flat-nosed bullets called wad cutters that were meant for target practice, not killing someone. They do not have a domed lead tip on them like most bullets we think of. They're just flat right on the edge. What happened is the bullet would dig in under his skin, tunnel around the backside of his skull, and then spit out the other side without ever penetrating his skull. So they did a lot of tissue damage, but wide cutters don't have anywhere near the hitting force of a normal 38. Robin, however, was hit with a bullet from a different gun, a 22 caliber pistol, just once in the chin. Doug says if the bullet had struck her a quarter of an inch in either direction, she would have chipped a tooth. But instead, it clipped her carotid artery. Somehow, after being shot, Robin managed to run inside the house, run upstairs to her bedroom, and collapse on her bed. A severely injured Bruce Jr. followed her up those stairs and cradled her as she died. Investigators were able to talk to Junior that night at the hospital. He said he didn't see the shooters, but he knew there were two of them. So here's what investigators knew at the time. Two people shot Robin and Junior, just days after Junior had been released from jail on bond, and just a couple of weeks after Junior had testified in front of a grand jury against the Johnston gang a gang that was led by his father, Bruce Johnston Sr. In hindsight, once you had all the facts, it was believable. But you had to believe some of the strange basic premises, which is what would happen if a father resolved that he would kill his own kids if it would keep him out of jail. And investigators and prosecutors did believe what should have been unbelievable, that Bruce Johnston Sr. and his brothers, David and Norman, would try to kill their own blood. They believed it because they knew the Johnston gang. In their Ten Commandments, there was only one, and that is, you don't rat us out or we'll kill you. 
You could do anything you wanted. You could rape your son's girlfriend. You could beat your wife. But what you didn't do was to rat on the family. That's my dad, Bill Lamb. At the time, he was District Attorney Lamb. He and his team believed the Johnstons were behind the ambush. Now, they had to prove it. What they didn't know yet was this wasn't the first murder. It was the last of a string of horrific crimes against young people in Chester County in August 1978. We're going to tell you about all those crimes over the course of this series and about four other killings that came before them and set the stage for the brutal murders of 1978. Before ending this episode, I want to be clear. These crimes and this case had an enormous impact on the Chester County community and beyond. We'll hear so much more about this in coming episodes. They even made a movie about it called At Close Range, starring Sean Penn and Christopher Walken. But the case, well, it had a huge impact on me, too, in ways I'm only now starting to realize, 45 years after it all went down. I attended parts of both trials. We'll get into that in later episodes. But the story started for my dad, for my family, years before the trials. It all started in August of 1978, when I was just 12 years old. I'm not sure when I first became aware of the case my dad was working on. I remember him being called out in the middle of the night. I remember hushed conversations between him and my mom in their bedroom across the hall from me. I remember my dad meeting with police officers around my kitchen table with files and documents piled high in front of them and the smoke from their cigarettes hanging like halos in the air above their heads. I listened to their chatter and picked up pieces that sounded darkly intriguing. 15-year-old girl killed, bullet to the chin, kids on drugs buried alive in the woods, a man buried in a landfill. I didn't know much about people who didn't grow up the same way I did. These kids, not much older than I was, were living an outlaw life, getting high and stealing tractors, just a few towns away from where I spent my days, studying, babysitting, hanging out at the mall. As Bill Lamb's daughter, I had no options but to study hard, work hard, go to college, and to try to do more good than harm in this world. Bruce Johnston Jr. and the rest of the Kitty Gang didn't really have fathers, only mentors in crime. My upbringing led me to become a crime reporter. Theirs put them behind bars or in the ground. This is The Killing Month, August 1978. 